Chelsea, thank you so much for taking the time to have a conversation about the the Kilby historic site. Let's start with yourself. How did you get involved in, in museums in, in general and specifically the Kilby, uh, Kilby Museum? Museums. Well, it started a long, long time ago. Um, I feel like I was around the age of 12 when I started to really like old things. So I started collecting little nicks and knacks, little antiques. Um, and then I started studying history when I got to university. So I had sort of a deep found love for it for quite a long time. Um, and life is kind of funny. You don't really know all the options out there until you start doing school or whatever else. And these opportunities just present themselves. So as things progressed, I was like, oh, museums, I really want to work in a museum. So that was always the dream. Um, and so I did my um, bachelor's in history at SFU. I got to do the honors program there, which was excellent. Um, and then I got to go off and do my master's at Oxford University. So history again. Um, and then along the way of volunteering and working in museums wherever I could. So that's sort of where my story starts here. Started off as a summer job as one of the interpreters in the museum. From there went to archival assistant. And then today I am the collections manager. So my present position is funded by the Heritage Branch, which is marvelous. So it's just a short contract for now. We're always working on more funding um, to get more projects done, but it's a great start. Hmm. And what are the nature of the collections uh, here? How, how did they how did they first start? What are what are some of the uh, what are some of the timelines in terms of its its development? Yeah, so um, it's the Kilby historic site. So it's sort of built around the Kilby family. The Kilbys moved to Harrison Mills in 1906, and they opened no, they moved here in 1903, um, and they opened the general store here in 1906, which they operated all the way up until 1972. So the son took over in 1922, uh, ran up until 72, and that's when the province purchased it as a heritage site. So the sort of very beginning of the collections is that first accession from the Kilbys. So it was a little bit of everything. We have about 150 boxes of archival materials we're still getting sorted through now. Um, and then also personal items and things that would have been on sale in the store originally. So Acton and Jesse Kilby, who were the owners at the time, they actually got to stay here until 1977 as curators. So we really got to preserve their story. Even when they were setting up the museum, Acton would sit on an old stool and he'd say, oh, the pharmacy was over there and hardware was over there. So we have it arranged accordingly. You had a chance to sort of document those those discussions uh, early early days as well, or were they, they connected to the, the people taking care of the Mostly connected to the people taking care of it at the time. Right. I know, I'm like, I wish I was a fly on the wall for most of those conversations. Um, we do have some records and some audio recordings of, of Acton talking about the place, but yeah. So it's an initial intake in the 1970s, and then it, it, it's just been kind of working through it since then? Have you had any more materials come, come into the collection in that time? Yes. So it's been a little bit of chaos. We um, accepted a lot of accessions in the 1980s. Um, there was quite a bit of funding there. And some of the accessions were very large lots. So there were some people that were very excited about tax receipts. So they're like, here's hundreds and hundreds of tins for product packaging. So we're still sorting through some of those. Some of them are very well documented. Um, but since sort of 2002, we haven't actively been collecting. Just for funding constraints, we haven't really had um, 
well, haven't been able to do collections or curatorial work. We've often had someone that's a curator in name, but they've been working on their butts off, um, getting funding and getting everything else organized and sort of basic operations. So we're super excited to have the funding now for me to start sorting through all the stuff that we have. Um, but yes, like I said, a little bit of chaos. Um, we still accept items from the family themselves. We have a really good relationship with our granddaughter. Um, so she actually recently sent us the family piano. So it was originally in the living room there. Um, we haven't quite got it up the stairs into the living room yet, so that'll happen shortly. But um, it's really cool when it's like exact items and she can tell us exactly where they went. So really staying true to that original history. Are there, are there blind spots, things that, that you, you're looking for to, to kind of fill out some of the story here? Yeah, for sure. So part of my current job is I get to make the archives more accessible which is a much larger job than we had anticipated because um, the archives haven't been completely organized. So as I've been going through there, I've been sort of noting lacunae um, and also um, sort of taking note of opportunities. So we have some really interesting documents from the 1920s. There was a fellow named Pokum Singh, so presumably of South Asian um, had roots there. So that's a really interesting story. He rented some land here um, and did farming for about five years. So that's a very interesting place where we can do some research and really tell that story. Um, but yeah, we definitely need to do some work on our diversity, um, making sure we really want this place to be a culturally safe place for everyone. And that's part of that is making people visible. So we need to develop that more. So part of that's just going through what we have and then building upon that and doing research and more active collecting in the future. Um, right now we're sort of still in the infancy of our collection, so it's still the consolidating and documentation. But that's definitely the hope for the future. Was there a focus early on more on the historical site function of the space and, and less on the, the kind of the research collection, would you say? Was yes, that, was it, yeah. for sure. Um, there was also a little bit of an emphasis on product packaging, so tins and labels, advertising medium, so there was quite a bit of time and energy put into that as well. Um, right now we're also working with the First Nations, our local neighbors, they're marvelous. Um, about two years ago we got to build an exhibit upstairs um, with some consultations and help of them, and uh, we're still working on that. We, the province just recently signed a memorandum of understanding with the Staelis and Scalitz nations. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a work in progress, but we're getting there. Mm. It's super exciting. Are there, are there researchers that make use of the collection in, in, in trying to understand the history of this region? Uh, has that been something that's been opening up with the organization of the collection? We're still like at the beginning stages, so that's definitely the hope. For the most part, we have people asking for photos um, for other purposes, so there's a little bit of research, but that's really the goal for the future, is making this far more accessible, so even if people, at this point, if somebody asks me something very specific, I could be like, well, I can take a look, but I can't just tell you right off the bat. So that's the hope that we'll be able to have researchers, especially because our archives are like untouched. Um, tons and tons of what we have is on uh, dairy organizations in the valley mm. um, and looking at sort of like butter fat content and all these different things and um, you have all these people that are writing letters to parliament arguing for standardized prices 
So there's some very interesting material in there. Um, even if you Google the different organizations, they barely come up or they just come up briefly mentioned on our website. So it's like, well, obviously we have the stuff for it. Um, but yeah, we'd love to do more research. In the cataloging and working through the collection, is it, um, are you looking to make it publicly accessible at that same process? Is it, is it a sort of work through or is it just right now cataloging it internally? It's a little bit of both. So right now we're working on funding. Hopefully next year we'll be able to do a really large project on that. Um, so if the funding comes through, we'd also have an intern that would be able to help me with that. And so we'd be doing uh, a lot of digitization at the same time, especially like this year with the Lytton Museum burning. Mm. You sort of have that extra urgency of like, we need to get this digitized. We need to protect it in more ways. We need to know what we have. Um, so that's been part of the project too. So if we get that funding, we'll also be getting some fire rated safes and all these different things. What are some other sections that you've been seeing and working through the material that you really look forward to coming back around on and, and uh, sinking your teeth into? There's some excellent ledgers. Okay. Um, so there's fun ones that are looking at um, wages for different people, farmhands or um, girls that were working in the store. Um, all of these different things. So it would be really interesting to delve into that and see who was working here, why were they working here. Um, we also have a very extensive record of all registered mail that came through here from 1903 to 1973. Um, so that's pretty remarkable. So that would be really fun to see where all these letters are coming from, who they're going to. Um, hmm. Sort of through that you have a very interesting lens of the whole community, which is something that can be a little bit lacking. Um, just since we haven't been actively collecting consistently throughout the years, it's harder to sort of have an understanding of the different families. There's like a few big names in there that we know about, but there's others that um, more sort of, they briefly stayed here and moved on. So getting to know their stories and mm. some of those connections would be amazing. Does this, do you get a sense that this area of Kilby, Harrison, was this kind of a transitory area or, or was this a place where people sort of set up? What, what, what did you get? What do you get of that feeling? So it has, that's something that we've been delving into a little bit, sort of the aspect of transportation. That's something that hasn't been too emphasized on site here, so we're working on that now. But it's actually very interesting in terms of transportation. So this was kind of the first waypoint on the way up to the gold fields um, originally. So it was before the Royal Engineers came along and built the road. Um, they'd come up here by Sternwheeler, sometimes they'd stop here, get some supplies. So then you sort of have that story of transition. Um, and then also people from Chilliwack, if they wanted to go to Vancouver before any of the highways were built, um, you would take a ferry across, you could stay the night here, and then you'd hop on the train in the morning. Uh, so this was kind of the only way to get to Vancouver. Um, up until 1910, when the BC Electric was built. So that's pretty remarkable too. Um, so yeah, you definitely have people coming and going. Um, you also have stories of isolation. There was a really big flood in 1948. So this entire thing was flooded all the way up to the boardwalk. So, um, But then you also have stories of the Red Cross trying to come in. They're shipping out tons of Coca-Cola because there's no drinking water. Kids liked it for a bit, then they all got sick. <laughs> so it's a very interesting sort of point in these stories. What what are some of the stories that you've that you've got your eye on to tell yeah. through the Kilby historic site? Yeah, well, I think one interesting opportunity we have. It's more of a difficult history, but looking at with the railway right here, this is probably the pathway that um, 
Japanese residents took on the way to internship. So during World War II, that would be a very interesting thing to discuss. Um, so I would love to see more research on that. And then mostly just building stuff, building on stuff that we have in the collection. We have really interesting correspondence with the Indian agent, um, looking at welfare, um, getting that history more incorporated. Because right now we have the First Nations exhibit and it's just in one room. So we really want to expand that so that's visible throughout the entire museum. And we get more of those stories and sort of bring those stories into the modern era, so to speak. Because um, that's often the problem, especially with First Nations, is um, they're often depicted through archaeological artifacts, so then they become equated with um, ancient relics, which they're not. They're alive, and they were very much a part of this community. So getting some of those a bit more visible. Um, Acton Kilby actually knew how to speak Halkamalam, so many indigenous people would come here and do business with him. Um, sometimes he was a little bit more expensive because he was out there, but often they said he had pretty, he was a fair um, dealer. So, yeah. Um, looking, you know, five five years into the future, a decade forward, where where do you see the the Kilby Historic Site? Where what are some aspirations for the future? There's always dreams for the future. Uh, we have a little piece of land over there. I found some documents. Someone was dreaming of having a vineyard over there. That hasn't happened yet. Um, but there's lots of different discussions, and part of it uh, will come out of these memorandums of understanding with our First Nations neighbors, um, seeing sort of what they want to see. There's been many different discussions about do we build another building that's specifically for them on the site, or We've got so many dreams. Um, we also have a log cabin that's currently mostly closed off. It's just sort of the front. You can look at it and you're like, oh, cool. Um, but our programmer would really love to get some programs going through there and have it set up like a log cabin. Right now it's like storage for animal feed. What, what, what's, a, what's an item that has drawn your attention? What has kind of excited you recently? <laughs> I don't know if it's exciting, but it's funny. Um, <laughs> you always find so many odd things in here. I... I was going through the accession records. I've been putting them in the database and making sure that we have multiple records and everything's in one place, but also multiple places. Um, so part of that, I was going through one, it was like one pair of shoes. I was like, one pair of shoes? Why did we accept one pair of shoes? And the description of the shoes is it says that the tongue of the shoe is missing because these were used to make slingshots. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's so random. So yes, there's all sorts of fun odds and ends in here. You were mentioning previous uh, curators or collections managers mm -hmm. having to be a jack of all trades, mm -hmm. working with lots of different things. Was that because of the nature of it being a historic, uh, historic site? Like, what? Why did it take this period of time to get to working point. on collections management in this way? Yeah. So it's mostly funding. Um, museums are chronically underfunded. Uh, we were part of a recent letter to uh, Katrine Conroy. Um, who's the minister? She has a very long title, but it's Forests, Lands, Natural Resources, and Urban Development. Mm -hmm. I think that's it. So, anyways, along with other provincial heritage sites, asking for more sustainable funding, because that's the thing with grants. It's often project-based, so it's kind of whatever is exciting, whatever short-term. But there's all this stuff that's kind of on the back burner, and it's like, oh, we have boxes that we don't really know what's in them, but we need to accession them, we need to take care of them. Um, it's a little less flashy for those that are granting funds. So that's a large part of it. Um, it's also we're run by a nonprofit, um, the Fraser Heritage Society. They're excellent. 
Um, so as a site, our focus has mostly been uh, around visitor experience. That's our main focus. So it's kind of basic operations, but it's also really making it exciting for those that visit. Because what's the point of a museum if you're not engaging with the public? Yeah. So we currently have a new programmer. I say new. She's been here for two years. She's very eager to get into full swing, but even this summer has been amazing to see all the different projects and programs she has going on. There's mm -hmm. something like all times of the day. So you can make butter and you can write a letter and you can watch a show. Mm. We have Anna Green Gables coming up in a few weeks. So it'll be a musical rendition by our very own Kilby Players. I'm very excited to see it. What are the Kilby Players? Are they? Uh... <laughs> They're mostly just our staff. Our staff is very talented. Um, our programmer Chris did a very good job of finding amazingly talented summer students. So most of them have musical inclinations, very handy. Um, if you wander out later, you might hear Ruthie playing her fiddle. So we'll see what it's like, but I think it'll be really fun. So there's always this chance of the, the history kind of coming alive through through in, interactive. Exactly. That's a big component of it. Yeah, we've always kind of called ourselves a living history site. Um, so Chris now is really leaning into that and saying, like, what does that mean? How do we make history come alive? So it's been excellent. Yeah. Chelsea, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thank you.